In our feature discussion this week, we look to the South China Sea, where the ongoing dispute over territory between China and its neighbours has seen new developments. CSS's Greg Poling, director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, joined my colleague Jeff Bean to analyse the latest diplomatic, legal and military developments since the mid-November East Asia Summit and their corresponding impact on the contested area. Hi, my name is Jeff Bean, editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog. Our topic today is the latest developments in the South China Sea for the podcast, and my guest today is Greg Poling, director of the CSIS Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, or AMTI. Greg, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, since the last time we chatted, there have been a number of key summits in East Asia and Southeast Asia uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks. What was your impression of the South China Sea as a topic, both at, at APEC, uh, which was held in Manila in the Philippines this year, as well as at the East Asia Summit and the surrounding ASEAN meetings in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia? Well, it's worth noting that you know both Manila, or the Philippines, and Malaysia are claimants here in the South China Sea. And anybody who expected some big deal or announcement or anything like that clearly doesn't know ASEAN and the ASEAN regional forums very well. That just doesn't happen. But what we did see, I think, was a change in tone. Um, ASEAN still struggled over how to deal with this. It, it came up uh, despite Chinese objections that we get every year. It was mentioned in, in especially at the EAS and the ASEAN meetings, the final chairman's declarations, which they, they hemmed and hauled over for a while. But from all accounts of, of folks who were actually there on the ground, it seems that a number of states that are normally more um, – quiet on the issue, who generally let others speak first and then will voice their support, actually step forward with uh, some more, you know, some more proactive things to say. And Malaysia, I think, tops that list. By all accounts, Malaysia, which, you know, obviously was the ASEAN chair and therefore had to run the meetings, also came out swinging on some of these issues in a way that we haven't seen before. Not exactly forcefully in the way that the Filipinos or Vietnamese often are or Japanese, but in a way that suggests that increasingly this is a top foreign policy priority for Malaysia, that that Malaysians recognize that they can no longer uh, try to manage this through what they see as their special relationship with China. And folks say that you saw the same from, from others, even outside states. Uh, Koreans have made a number of statements, including at the forums, that not, aren't exactly uh, tough on China, but show a real anxiety about what's going on and the potential for the South China Sea to spiral. So I think overall the tone here was one of growing regional concern and one of a more united front in, in that concern. In terms of tone, what did you make of President Obama's uh, visit out to Philippines naval vessel, uh, as well as uh, you mentioned the uh, relationship with Malaysia, Secretary Carter's um, uh, trip and meeting with his uh, uh, equivalent uh, in the South China Sea on a vessel uh, a couple weeks ago? Yeah, it was interesting. The president's visit to Manila really seemed to be an echo uh, or a follow-on of Secretary Carter's visit to Kuala Lumpur for the ASEAN Defense Minister's meeting plus uh, a month earlier. Both involved naval visits, both involved very strong language about uh, partnerships and the need to stand up for maritime security and freedom of navigation, et cetera, et cetera. Secretary Carter's was really uh, interesting because a lot of the focus was on how the ADMM plus, as, as the defense minister's meeting is called, failed to, to come up with a joint statement on the, the South China Sea. But on the bilateral front, uh, Defense Minister Hishamuddin Hussein took a fly out to uh, a U.S. aircraft carrier for the first time in the middle of the South China Sea in what was hard to see as anything but a symbolic statement about Malaysia's concern for the South China Sea and its commitment to 
the U.S. as a partner, not an ally. Malaysia is not going to be the Philippines or Japan or even Singapore, but clearly a, a growing defense relationship, security relationship. In, in Manila, we saw much the same thing, but on a, a grander scale with President Obama's meeting with President Aquino, uh, with the continued statements about commitment of, of U.S. to a treaty ally. It was unfortunate that the president still didn't have the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement in hand, which was the bilateral agreement that uh, the president, well, that our ambassador signed just before the president visited Manila uh, almost two years ago now. It's been quite some time, and it's still hung up in the Supreme Court in the Philippines. Uh, but I, I expect that we will see that, with any luck, pass out of the court this month. Now, in terms of the regional response to China's activities in the South China Sea, we've covered that a, a great deal in our past podcasts and throughout uh, both AMTI and CSIS's broader uh, coverage of developments in, in East Asia. I want to dive in specifically on what is the latest in China, China's island-building campaign? What sort of key developments would you highlight? Yeah, well, it's clear that the large-scale island building is done, meaning the reclamation work. The islands aren't, aren't growing out anymore. They're now growing up, by which I mean China's focused on building all the infrastructure, the buildings, the support uh, that, that are going to be needed to make these functioning bases, whether you want to see that as civilian or military bases. So we're seeing a lot more uh, administrative buildings go up. We're seeing a lot more work on dredging and widening harbors, uh, port facilities, on uh, obviously the airstrips at three of these features. Um, the Fiery Cross airstrip is functionally done, as far as we know. The ones at Subi and Mischief are getting there. Uh, we now know that at, at Mischief, uh, it's clear that what appeared to be an airstrip, the, the early works on the airstrip in September, definitely is. Uh, and then you're seeing work on, on various things that would be kind of dual use, uh, have value for both civilian and military purposes, radar towers, early one radar, and the like. We're still not seeing anything that is overt militarization. Um, Whatever that means, you know, there's no deployments of, of air wings or, or naval ships, nothing, no large artillery uh, emplacements. Uh, but by its very nature, almost all of this infrastructure can be used for military purposes. And you don't need a 3,000-meter airstrip to land cargo planes. You need it to land bombers. I want to change the direction here for a second. One of the things that you've advocated over the last couple of years uh, with respect to the South China Sea dispute is that a legal mechanism uh, for adjudicating the various claims is probably the best way forward. Of course, the Philippines filed a case under uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, against China with respect to its nine-dash line claim uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, there's been a case underway at the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. The Philippines uh, received a, a ruling from the PCA earlier this year that the, the court did have jurisdiction, the tribunal did have jurisdiction in the case. Over the last two or three weeks, uh, or certainly in, at the end of November, the Philippines gave arguments uh, on the merits of the case uh, to the tribunal. What does this consist of, and what types of things do you think that they, they argued? Yeah, well, that's right. So earlier in the year, like you say, the court ruled that it well, it either had jurisdiction or would have to decide jurisdiction at the same time as it uh, decided the merits of the case, meaning that some of these issues about whether or not it could even rule uh, required showing evidence of the status of features, things like that. Uh, the core of this case is the question of whether or not China's nine-dash line, the, these nine dashes that slaps on maps and, and says the maritime claim, whether or not that meets the minimum legal requirement for a maritime claim in the 21st century. 
Uh, I'm quite confident. I think the Philippines is quite confident. I think everybody outside of China is, is quite confident that the court, having found jurisdiction, will rule in the Philippines' favor on that question. Uh, the Nine Dash Line just doesn't qualify as a maritime claim. That doesn't mean that Chinese claims in the South China Sea writ large have no validity, but it means that you have to frame those in terms of territorial seas and exclusive economic zones and continental shelves based on land features, just like everybody else who's a party to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. The rest of the case uh, largely revolves around the status of, of a number of features, Scarborough Shoal, uh, which China seized from the Philippines in 2012, and China's seven occupied features in the Spratlys. Some of them, the Philippines claims, are submerged or underwater. Some it claims are legally rocks and not islands, meaning that they can't sustain human habitation, and therefore they uh, can't generate more than a 12-mile territorial sea. The court will presumably rule on all of that, though there are some questions on some of those things about whether or not it really still has jurisdiction. But I think we'll find all of that out in the next six months or so. Uh, I expect by mid-2016 we'll get a ruling. Uh, that ruling will be either partially in the Philippines' favor or overwhelmingly in the Philippines' favor. It's, I think it's really a matter of the degree of, of that victory now, uh, not whether or not it happens. And what has China said uh, about the, the recent uh, hearing, and uh, have, they, have they said anything new with respect to the case? China's repeated what it said since the case was filed in early 2013, which is that the court has no uh, jurisdiction, uh, has no standing to hear this case. China has taken, ha has taken out exemptions under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, as any nation can, but those exemptions are very narrow in their scope. You can be exempted based on uh, military issues or from uh, arbitration dealing with delimitation. The court has found that at least some of these questions the Philippines are asking don't fall under either of those umbrellas. Therefore, it has jurisdiction. China continues to, to not show up, essentially, says that it's not going to abide by any uh, award issued by the court. And that might be true, but it's also true that China does care. As dismissive as it's been, it wouldn't be spending so much energy and so much time trying to both uh, undermine the case, undermine the, the arguments being made, and also trying to pressure the Philippines into dropping the case as it has over the last two years. Yeah, I thought it was interesting this week that uh, President Ma's administration in Taiwan or the Republic of China also announced that uh, they would not be abiding by the, the court's uh, decision, which uh, is a little bit disappointing, I think, from the perspective of folks that were hoping that Taiwan would take a constructive uh, stance in both the, the East and South China Seas. Yeah, it's interesting that Taiwan, for most folks outside of uh, either China, the Taiwanese claim is assumed to be identical to that of the mainland. Uh, it's They're both based on an 11 dash line originally uh, published under the then Republic of China, the nationalist government. Uh, in 1947. Now, Taiwan has been fairly quiet over the years on whether or not that's the case. It doesn't really ha stand any. It doesn't stand to gain from either being seen to side with Beijing or or overtly against Beijing. It has bigger concerns in the cross-strait relationship. In this, it's taken a very particular stance, which is that Ituaba, the largest of the natural features in the Spratlys and the only one occupied by Taiwan, is in fact a legal island, which is something that not even China has explicitly said. Uh, and that's forced – well, the Philippines, we know, did begin including Ituaba in the case, even though it's not occupied by China or one of those features directly asked about in the case. Uh, because it's the largest natural feature, the Philippines sees it as 
a way to get a home run, so to speak, here. If they can get the judges to agree that Ituaba is not an island, then logically nothing is an island in the Spratleys. Uh, and during the merits hearing uh, over over the Thanksgiving holiday, the lead counsel for the Philippines, Paul Reichler, referred to Ituaba as a Potemkin island, by which he means that uh, the Taiwanese authorities have done everything they can to try to dress it up like it's an island, building various infrastructures, trying to, to dig a well that, that only gets salt water, things like this to make it seem more livable than it actually is. Now, in light of these recent developments, what additional steps is the United States taking, both uh, from a strategy perspective as well as a military perspective, along with other countries, uh, to uh, address concerns over freedom of navigation in the South China Sea? I think the U.S. and most countries concerned have a pretty multifaceted uh, policy. One that's gotten a ton of attention, obviously, in the U.S. is, is the so-called freedom of navigation operations, uh, one of which has been performed so far and, and more have been promised. These are part of, uh, I think, a, just one part of the U.S. strategy, which is to actively assert what the U.S. sees as its rights under, under uh, international law and to object to what it sees as excessive restraints put, on, put in place by China. Other nations, uh, I expect, are going to follow suit. We've heard various statements from uh, Canberra in particular to suggest that the Australians might get on board uh, and that the Japanese might, as well as other Southeast Asian states. Uh, even the Indonesians have suggested they could do something like this. They might call them something different, but that they will essentially sail wherever international law allows despite or even because of Chinese objections. The U.S. is also, though, pursuing uh, various efforts in capacity building, partner capacity building for the Southeast Asian states to try to boost their capacity to stand up to China, make sure they're not steamrolled in this, uh, and is still pursuing diplomatic measures. I mean, this is not about uh, military containment of China. This isn't about a U.S.-China standoff. This isn't just about military deterrence. The, the U.S. is continuously at every forum, every bilateral meeting trying to raise issues with China to find middle ground, trying to say, don't militarize these features, you know, stop changing the status quo, let's find a way to work through this. But the bottom line is that the U.S. and none of the regional states are going to accept any kind of new status quo in the region that, that prevents freedom of navigation uh, as protected by international law. So looking ahead to, to 2016, we saw uh, just this week the Singapore announced that they are temporarily allowing uh, a P-8 um, aircraft to be deployed uh, through Singapore to patrol the South China Sea. What other developments do you anticipate coming over the next year that we should be on the lookout for? Well, the, the Singapore, the P-8 announcement's gotten a lot of play, understandably, but it's part of a much larger, uh, you know, well, deepening of the of the U.S.-Singapore strategic partnership. The There have been U.S. rotational deployments of naval air and, and you know assets for years, that's not going to change, but recently there was an enhanced defense cooperation agreement just inked. Uh, the P-8 deployments are, are essentially part of that. Uh, it's gotten a lot of attention given the high politicization of this issue right now. The, the you know, Chinese have, have had to respond uh, rather negatively, but I don't think it, it, it points to a fundamental change shift in the relationship. This is just a deepening of what's been happening for years. But it does point to the larger U.S. goal of, of deepening its security partnerships, deepening its rotational presence throughout the region. I think you can see it as the same effort being made in the Philippines with the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which, if it's approved by the Philippine Supreme Court, uh, fingers crossed, 
will give U.S. troops, plane ships, greater access to the Philippines, but will also allow the U.S. to invest heavily in developing Philippine military infrastructure, help the Philippines stand up for its own uh, interests, help it with maritime domain awareness. It's the same uh, as, as the same overall strategy uh, that's driving the recently announced um, Southeast Asia Maritime Security Initiative, which will be a hundreds of multi-hundred million dollar annual effort to boost maritime capacity in Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam, Philippines, and Malaysia. Uh, and we're even seeing this in, in um, rotational deployments out of Malaysia over the last few years, so those seem to be more uh, ad hoc and in the still nascent but growing security relationship with Vietnam. Greg Poling, we're going to have to watch all that stuff really closely. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.